Hi, it's Tom Panneries, and I wanted to come in at the top of the show here to say that this is one of a series of episodes that will cover the events of September 11th, 2001, along with the popular culture about it. Though these events are now 20 years in the past, they are still traumatizing to many, and I wanted to give you a heads up that listener discretion is advised. If you choose to listen and have thoughts, comments, or points you'd like to make, I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Comment on the Facebook post at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Or find me on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. But the only certainty we have is the certainty we had at the start. At 15 seconds after 9.41 a.m. on September 11, 2001, a photographer named Richard Drew took a picture of a man falling through the sky, falling through time as well as space. The picture went all around the world and then disappeared, as if we willed it away. One of the most famous photographs in human history became an unmarked grave, and the man buried inside its frame, the falling man, became the unknown soldier in a war whose end we have not yet seen. Richard Drew's photograph is all we know of him, and yet all we know of him becomes a measure of what we know of ourselves. The picture is his cenotaph, and like the monuments dedicated to the memory of unknown soldiers everywhere, it asks that we look at it and make one simple acknowledgement, that we have known who the falling man is all along. That is the final paragraphs from The Falling Man, a 2003 Esquire article that details people's efforts to discover the identity of the person in a now iconic photograph from September 11th. It's a story of tragedy and heartbreak, as well as an examination of how much we are willing to look at and ultimately accept when it comes to carnage and violence. It's one of several items I'll be looking at in this, the sixth and final episode in a six-episode miniseries about 9-11 and popular culture brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I've been doing over the course of these six episodes is examining the books, movies, music, comics, and other popular culture that directly addresses or is about the attacks of September 11, 2001. Each episode has focused on a different medium, and I have spent time reviewing them as well as evaluating their effectiveness in capturing the moments and feelings of the day. We use our culture to both memorialize and interpret events. And with 20 years gone since that day, it's time we look at whether or not those pieces accomplished what they set out to do.
Now, I will tell you up front that I'm not going to be able to talk about every single piece of popular culture that is about 9-11, and will mostly stick to what I've read, watched, or listened to, or what had any sort of effect on me. So there will be a lot that I do not talk about, and you're welcome to let me know what I might be missing. But keep in mind that even though I'm going for some talk about history and popular culture here, I'm also going to speak from a very personal place. And that means that some of my preferences and biases might be on display. I think I'll also take a moment to tell you that while I'll be getting into people's visions, interpretations, or fictionalizations of 9-11, I will not be getting into anything regarding conspiracy theories. I personally find them, 9-11, trutherism, and everything else associated with it, to be morally repugnant. Last episode, I looked at how popular music responded to and interpreted the events. This time around, I'll be giving you a bit of a grab bag episode, featuring things I really couldn't fit anywhere else. The reason for that is because many of these items are inherently ephemeral, or are moments more vaguely remembered, perhaps only when discussing trivia about the day. That, or like the falling man, they're set aside because of the more vivid visceral pain they tend to cause. The selections in this episode range from things found on the internet, television events, and even sports. And I'm going to start with something that actually doesn't come from 9-11, but found a resurgence after that day, which is The Americans, a 1973 radio address by Canadian broadcaster Gordon Sinclair. Now, the idea that something patriotic from the past saw a resurgence in popularity post-9-11 should not be new or surprising. I talked about just that when I mentioned both Whitney Houston's version of the Star-Spangled Banner and Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA last episode. This was a more obscure piece whose words found their way into an email forward starting in September and October 2001. I'll have more to say about email forwards and the internet later on, so for now I'll give you a little backstory on the Americans. In 1973, America was hitting a low point of morale. We were just about to withdraw from Vietnam, Spiro Agnew wound up being forced to resign from the vice presidency, and the Watergate scandal was heating up to the point where Richard Nixon was starting to feel a lot more pressure, and he would resign in August of 1974. That year also brought with it economic problems such as inflation and an oil crisis. On June 5th of 1973, Sinclair delivered his radio address, The Americans, in which he made the point that when other countries faced a crisis, America was there to help. When America faced a crisis, it often did so alone. As the most generous and possibly the least appreciated people in all the world. As long as 60 years ago, when I first started to read newspapers, I read of floods on the Yellow River and the Yangtze. Well, who rushed in with men and money to help? The Americans did, that's who. They have helped control floods on the Nile, the Amazon, the Ganges, and the Niger. Today, the rich bottomland of the Mississippi is underwater, and no foreign land has sent a dollar to help. Germany, Japan, and to a lesser extent, Britain and Italy, were lifted out of the debris of war by the Americans who poured in billions of dollars and forgave other billions in debts. None of those countries is today paying even the interest on its remaining debts to the United States. The piece was then reread by Byron McGregor and released as a single 
with an orchestral version of America the Beautiful being played behind it. The single went on to sell 3.5 million copies and would actually hit the Billboard Hot 100, topping out at number 4. Gordon Sinclair released his own version as a single later on, and that would chart as well, reaching number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100 the following year in 1974. The text went viral in 2001, and that text going viral without any recording being passed around, as this was in the days prior to easy access and video streaming and often without actual attribution or context, that was not surprising considering the patriotic mood that swept the nation after 9-11. In fact, the patriotism started almost immediately. The dust hadn't been cleared and the fires had not been put out, but Congress was on the steps of the Capitol singing God Bless America, while people on the news were heard commenting that they needed to show their patriotism as a sign of resilience. As the weeks wore on, the idea that patriotism was necessary or else the terrorists win was cemented in our collective consciousness. It's a sentiment I understand, not one that I really want to rebut or fact check, because while I certainly am often critical of our government for its military intervention in places where it's not needed, intervention that often results in the unnecessary loss of life, I am proud of the very noteworthy times when we have provided aid in some way or another. In some cases, yes, military support in nations that need it. In other cases, economic aid, the Marshall Plan, for example. It shows not just the United States' willingness, but our want to be an ally and our want to help the world and its citizens. Unfortunately, We've seen a few years of our fellow Americans and its citizens vehemently opposed to such actions on aid, even when it comes to helping our own or lifting up others. Ironically, some of those people would be the first to repost or pass on Gordon Sinclair's address without recognizing the hatred that they spew on the regular. As corny, and I'm sure my more progressive friends would call me a naive, for saying this. As corny as this sounds, Sinclair's address gives me a sense of hope and reminds me what I love about this country, even during those times when I'm upset and frustrated at it. But I will say that I was also quite critical personally of the patriotic mood post 9-11, because while I understood it and felt even felt an embrace that at points, there were points where I thought it might be a little too much and perhaps getting dangerous. The latter sentiment came about in regard to polls showing people who were willing to give up some rights in the name of feeling safer, a sentiment that the government pounced upon when they drew up the Patriot Act. I don't have the time to get into the Patriot Act and all of its effects, except to say that in many ways it's cost us a lot over the past 20 years. What I will get into, though, is the way that patriotism was used not just as a salve for our wounds— but as a way to gloss over what happened and even feed denial. As flags began to wave more and more, the very violent reality of that day slightly faded into the background. Not entirely. We were completely aware of what happened and how many died, but the more visceral accounts of what happened were put away. And... I did wonder if we were moving on too quickly, especially as we pivoted toward Afghanistan, 
And then the Bush administration proceeded to snow us into leading up to the Iraq war. Um, support the troops who had been started appearing on SUVs. Had we really processed all of this fully or were we distracted by something else or was it were we manipulated into something else? Because as that was happening, there were a lot of unanswered questions. There were untold stories. I talked about the 9-11 Commission in episode one of this miniseries, and that would seek to answer a number of those questions. The untold stories would come from a number of different sources. The first being the documentary 9-11, which aired on CBS in 2002. The documentary directed by French filmmakers Jules Naudet and Gideon Naudet, as well as American James Hanlon, was an accidental account of the day because the Nadets were actually filming a documentary about New York City firefighters. They were embedded with Engine 7 Ladder 1 on the morning of September 11th. They'd been out investigating a report of an odor of gas at church and Lipsonard streets when Jules heard a plane flying very close and got one of only three known recordings of the first plane hitting the North Tower. He and his brother then followed the crew throughout their rescue efforts in the towers, as well as the aftermath back at the station, as members of the company reported in and others did not. They eventually took their footage and edited it into this documentary, which was picked up by CBS and aired on March 10th, 2002. It was shown, I believe, with limited or no commercial interruption. It was also shown with all of its profanity intact. This is something that CBS standards and practices allowed even and even eventually appealed to the FCC, an appeal that they won. The 9-11 firefighter documentary was filled by 39.4 million people when it first aired. It won an Emmy Award and a Peabody Award. I was one of the people who watched it on that first airing. I remember the lead up to it because CBS did court controversy by showing it. People wondered if it was appropriate to show it due to the nature of the material and the fact that it had only been six months since the attacks. But the film was an apolitical piece of cinema verite about firefighters that while it could definitely be triggering to many and was tough to watch during the moments of absolute chaos within the towers, it did confirm some of the stories we'd been hearing. Not that people didn't believe the stories of heroism, but part of you does want to see some of that. And for real, not fictionalized. From what I remember, it was tough to watch, uh, but um, but I, I didn't feel turned off by it. I still don't. I haven't seen it in 20 years. But thinking back to it, I think I would, ra I would watch that before I watch anything like on the History Channel about it or a number of the documentaries that are available on streaming services. It might be the very straightforward verite aspect of the French filmmakers who, who made the documentary, because while I wasn't there there, the proximity I feel to everything makes me want to not view 9-11 through a prepackaged lens, which is ironic considering I will watch stuff about um, other tragedies through a prepackaged lens. Pearl Harbor, the Kennedy assassination, the Challenger disaster, Oklahoma City, those sorts of things. But again, 
the circumstances, my personal experience, my personal thoughts, I think that's what dictates it. Um, it's it's not exactly easy to come by for free. Uh, it is available on Amazon, but the rental is like eleven dollars. Um, I didn't see it available any in any other streaming service. Uh, I couldn't even find it on on YouTube. But much like when I was talking about United ninety three a couple of episodes ago, if you can handle that sort of violence, you should give it a watch at least once. It's another one of those you know you should. Try to see if you could see this once, after which you probably don't need to see it again. But it is a good, like, literal documentary. Like, you know, it's documentary in its literal form, whereas so many of the um, other documentaries that you could find on Prime or or Netflix or whatever veer toward the the truth about 9-11 and and a lot of the, um, or or so are, are trying to be conspiratorial or on the other side of that, try to be mythological, which is uh, which is also dangerous in itself. Now, there was an argument whether or not that documentary was tasteful, and the, that idea of tastefulness was important and was explored in the wake of 9-11. For instance, the tastefulness in news coverage. Now, we all know that the footage of the towers being hit and collapsing, as well as the Pentagon being on fire, was played over and over on what seemed like a constant loop through the few days right after 9-11. But one aspect of that morning that was there in the moment and in newspapers on the 12th, but quietly disappeared shortly afterward, was the stories, images, and videos of people who jumped from the Twin Towers. These are people who were working above where the planes hit and were therefore trapped and decided to take matters into their own hands when it became apparent that they were not going to survive. Of these people, one of them was captured in a now-famous photograph by Associated Press photographer Richard Drew. He was a veteran news photographer who had been covering Robert Kennedy's 1968 presidential campaign when RFK was assassinated in June of 1968, and and, uh, Drew took some of the widely seen photographs of the assassination. The Falling Man photograph did run in newspapers on September 12, 2001, but like I said, didn't get much coverage afterward. But in 2003, Tom Juneau wrote a feature for Esquire magazine where he not only interviewed Drew about the photograph, but tried to figure out who the man in the photograph was, who was the Falling Man. The hook for the article reads as follows. Do you remember this photograph? In the United States, people have taken pains to banish it from the record of September 11, 2001. The story behind it, though, and the search for the man pictured in it are our most intimate connection to the horror of the day. And while the article does include the now-famous photograph, Juno does still describe it in an artistic sort of way, which gives it gravitas. If you look at it, the falling man is centered, pointing straight downward in the space between the two towers. It is, it's striking. There's like an ironic type of beauty to it. Drew's recollection of taking the photograph is very workmanlike. He arrived on the scene. He started taking photographs. He noticed people jumping. He followed them down with his camera and eventually had to stop shooting when the tower began to collapse, lest he get crushed by the debris. Peter Cheney, a reporter from Toronto, is the one with a deep curiosity about the falling man. So after Juno gives us the history of the events and then talks to Richard Drew, he talks to Cheney about how he tried to track this person down, eventually narrowing it down to two people and visiting their families. 
These meetings did not really go very well. One of the people who may be in the photograph is named Norberto Hernandez, who worked at Windows on the World. His family, who are deeply Catholic, are scandalized by the possibility that he had died by suicide, even going as far to tell Cheney that, quote, that piece of shit is not my father. Another possible person is Jonathan Briley, who also worked at Windows on the World. In both cases, there is certainty and doubt on the part of a number of people, and the conclusion, as you know, reads, reaches is what I read at the very top of the episode. The article inspired a documentary about the situation. I, I will tell you I have not seen the documentary. But as a piece of long-form journalism, it's an excellent article. Junot not only gets the background and story behind people jumping from the towers in efforts to find them, but he also examines how American society viewed these photographs and how many did their best to pretend that they weren't there. When Eric Fischel chooses to create a sculpture inspired by those who jumped called Tumbling Woman, he is pilloried by the New York Post for putting it on display. Granted, it's the New York Post, but still, you know, that is one of the major newspapers in the, in the, in the city, like it or not. But in the Esquire piece, Fischl expresses that the falling towers and the planes hitting a building are horrible but comprehensible in a sense, either because we see them over and over or because we are so used to pictures of such violence and disaster, whether it be through footage of war, natural disasters, or special effects in films. But when you get to real individual deaths, that makes us uneasy because they're much harder to put into the abstract. Unfortunately, the Esquire article is now behind a members-only paywall, but I will link to the Wikipedia page about the photograph in the show notes because it does have links to other sources that fill in some of the details about the photographs. My next piece of note is not a photograph, but a postcard. It's from Post Secret, Frank Warren's blog that was launched in 2005 where he publishes postcard-based secrets that are sent to him. You can still see weekly secrets at postsecret.com and Warren still does his exhibits and lectures at college campuses. Plus, there are a number of books available that showcase the postcards, and most famously, post-secret postcards were featured in the video for Dirty Little Secrets by the band All-American Rejects. But the postcards themselves are ephemeral to anyone who does not know the people sending them or isn't an avid follower. Shocking to nobody, there are entire message boards and Facebook groups and Reddit threads dedicated to post-secrets or the postcards themselves. But for a lot of us, they are something that we see but rarely stick with us individually. One that has stuck with me over the years is a black and white postcard that shows a black and white drawing of the Twin Towers on fire. Across the top is the phrase, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. It's a haunting message, one that is hard to ignore or forget, and the identity of this person has never been revealed or solved. Warren himself doesn't know who it is, mainly because the postcards that are sent his way are completely anonymous, but that hasn't stopped other people from trying to figure this out. A number of internet detectives slash true crime junkies have suggested that it's a postcard from Sneha Ann Philip, an Indian-American doctor who was last seen on September 10th of 2001, a disappearance that remains unsolved. Honestly, that is a bit of a stretch. Uh, this that it is the type of stretch the internet is known for. And I'm more accepting of the fact that nobody is ever going to find out who this person is. 
Yeah, I realize it probably is somebody's idea of a sick joke, so the whole thing's a fake. But I also wonder if there was anyone who used that moment to completely redo themselves, faking their death so they could start over, perhaps as a way to avoid taking their own life. That was a plot point of that rather mediocre novel, The Emperor's Children, that I read and, and talked about a few episodes ago. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, right? And I wonder if they successfully did so, where are they? Have they been able to keep it up for 20 years? That's a story that would be interesting to explore. Much like the photograph of the falling man, this postcard hangs there. It captures a moment. It makes us feel uncomfortable because it's, it's violent and it's sad and mysterious. And the fact that we don't know makes that even worse. Next up is what was then known as the Urban Legends reference pages, but we all know it as Snopes. By 2001, Snopes was already a great office time waster. There were many entries about classic urban legends like Bloody Mary, Aren't You Glad You Didn't Turn Out the Light, etc., as well as rumors and tall tales about famous people or historical figures. After 9-11, Snopes became almost a public service as all sorts of rumors and other stories began flying around the internet, mostly on message boards and definitely through email forwards. For the youngs, email forwards were the way that boomers spread bullshit before Facebook existed. Anyway, those rumors via emails, message boards, and other internet spaces gave the founders of Snopes so much work to do, and they did it so well that they got a write-up in the Washington Post. In fact, 9-11 and its aftermath, especially the lead-up to the Iraq War in 2000-2003, is during the first wave of citizen journalism or do-it-yourself journalism in the 21st century. This was the era when blogs had just as much influence over political players as did the mainstream media. Very often those blogs didn't check their facts because they were pushing an agenda, much like we see today with sites like Breitbart. The editors at Snopes did their best to just keep debunking rumor after rumor, and they are still around, still checking facts, too. And by the way, if you want a really good look at that very early 2000s blogosphere, uh, there's an episode or two that of the latest season of Slow Burn that gets into that. Yeah, the Slow Burn episode, season this season is um, about the lead-up to the Iraq War, and, um, and, and it's really, really interesting to take a look back at all of that, especially since, you know, I remember that pretty vividly. But as for Snopes, they have a really deep archive. Um, they have archives going all the way back to their early days, including an entire archive of their 9-11 related material. I scrolled through a number of them and picked five that when I came upon them remembered pretty well. The first of them is conspiracy-related. 
Now, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about 9-11 conspiracies, and I'm really not going to get into them. But I should note that as early as a few days after the attacks, there were rumors and conspiracies flying around. Not that everything was fake, mind you, but that people knew what it was going to happen, for instance. That was the big conspiracy. I think the most popular version of this rumor is the rumor that, quote, 4,000 Israelis employed by companies housed in the World Trade Center stayed home from work on 9-11, warned in advance of the impending attack on the World Trade Center. Another version of this is that you knew someone who had an Arab-American co-worker who was mysteriously absent from work on 9-11 and didn't show up after that either. Both of these were patently false, of course, and they were driven by hate. Snopes says that the rumors, which were mostly circulated via emails, scarcely merit the dignity of a rebuttal and point out the way that, quote, there were plenty of anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, and anti-Israeli groups eager to use the horrors of September 11th as fodder for propaganda to serve their own political ends. Of course, some people did supposedly predict 9-11, and among them was, well, Nostradamus, of course. I mean, you don't get urban legend reference pages, a huge event, and not get at least one person claiming that Nostradamus predicted this entire fucking thing. But he didn't. He never did. And almost immediately after the attacks, a number of rumors did start flying around that his various quatrains said like things like, in the city of God, there will be a great thunder, two brothers torn apart by chaos, while the fortress endures, the great leader will succumb, the third big war will begin when the big city is burning. Shit like this made it into shitty History Channel specials, too, and Snopes was pretty quick to prove it false. The, quote, predictions were lines spliced together from various other quotes by Nostradamus to make them seem true, or some of them were just outright made up. And the next bit from Snopes is not conspiratorial, it's not predictive, but it does approach the mood of the country after 9-11. If you remember the weeks and months afterward, there was a lot of flag waving and flag flying. I talked about that earlier. People bought flag bumper stickers. They attached flags to their cars. They even printed them out and taped them to their cubicles. With this were stories, both true and untrue, of companies banning flags. One true story is the management of the National Council of Compensation Insurance sent out a memo prohibiting employees from displaying flags at their desks saying that, quote, divisive statements or actions, political or religious discussions, and anything else that could be divisive or mean different things to different people are not appropriate in our work environment. Now, more than likely, they were actually just trying to avoid a lawsuit or a situation that could lead to a lawsuit. Um, so it was not a political move, but the publicity they got was so bad that they reversed the policy. Another example of a, quote, flag ban that was misconstrued came out of Berkeley, California, where the city's fire chief ordered the department to take flags off their trucks as a safety precaution before an anti-war protest. He was worried that the protest would get violent and the flags would be set on fire. The protest never got violent. Flags were placed back on the trucks soon after, but not before the press pundits and the internet got a hold of the story and accused the fire department of being unpatriotic. Granted, anything slightly controversial in Berkeley is catnip to Fox News, so the fact that this blew up was not surprising. But cancel culture was hard at work slapping down anyone who didn't fall in lockstep with the uber-patriotism of the moment. People were really easily triggered. Like when Starbucks did a 9-11 poster in 2002. 
Okay, they did not do a 9-11 poster, but they had to pull an in-store poster advertising their Tazos slushy drinks. The poster, which I'll put in the show notes, features two cups of full of Tazoberry and Tazo citrus slushy drink sitting among grass made of Starbucks green straws with butterflies around them and a dragonfly in the background. The slogan is, collapse into cool. What was offensive about it? Well, add it all up and squint hard enough and apparently you can see a jumbo jet heading for the Twin Towers. There was a public outcry about it, some news stories, and Starbucks pulled the promo poster and saying they regret, quote, if this poster was in any way misinterpreted to be insensitive or offensive, as this was never our intent. Remember what I said about Berkeley being catnip to Fox News? Well, how many of those people love to line up and say, put Merry Christmas on my venti latte or some shit every year? Like... Uh, but it is an example of how people were highly sensitive and easily triggered at the time. I actually remember an email petition going around or an online petition going around to get the name of the Lord of the Rings, the two towers changed before it was released in theaters. No, I'm not kidding. Anyway, one more thing from Snopes before I move on. It's one of the more famous fabrications about post 9-11, and that's the photograph of the 9-11 tourist. Some of you remember this. This got passed around by the same channels. It's a picture of a guy in a coat and a backpack standing on the outdoor observation deck of the World Trade Center. And the background is New York City, and a jumbo jet is flying right for the building. This was supposedly the last picture of someone right before the plane hit, and it's easy to tell this is false. First of all, the weather was too warm for a winter coat that day. The observation deck didn't open until 9.30, which is after both planes hit. It's the wrong plane, like the wrong type of plane, and the plane is coming from the wrong direction. Yet people fell for this and forwarded it around. Now, some people forwarded it around because they, this is like, this is hilarious. And this was kind of a dark joke. But others actually believed it. It did go viral. Snopes had to debunk it. Speaking of dark jokes, something that I've read and reread in the 19 years since it was originally published was the September 11th, 2002 article on Salon.com entitled Forbidden Thoughts About 9-11, and the next day, uh, the September 12, 2002, reader response column. It's meant as a companion slash response to September 11th, An Oral History, which was a book written and edited by Dean Murphy and was one of what Salon notes was dozens of books published in 2002 about 9-11. Murphy's book includes stories from a number of people who were witnesses or at the attacks, and according to the Dust Jacket, seeks to be, quote, a tribute to the spirit of cooperation and the outpourings of empathy that marked the day for so many people in the United States and abroad. But Damien Cave, who wrote this piece for Salon, goes on to say, quote, what Murphy and other authors miss is the fact that cooperation and empathy were not the only emotions of the day. They were simply the publicly expressed emotions of the day. Many of us didn't just feel sad or angry or proud in the face of the day's horrors, or when President Bush and the media requested it. We also felt indifferent, confused, selfish, annoyed, and in some cases, even happy or excited. We had thoughts that we couldn't explain or control, thoughts we didn't express, except perhaps in whispered conversations. 
And he goes on to share a number of these thoughts, some of which were from notable people who were notably shamed for what they did, such as Susan Sontag, who pushed back against the idea that the terrorists were cowards, Ann Coulter, who called for the invasion of their countries and the conversion of their people to Christianity, John Cooksey, Republican congressman from Louisiana, who called for the racial profiling of all Muslims, Jerry Falwell, who appeared on the 700 Club to blame the attacks on abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, and the ACLU. Others were anonymous or semi-anonymous quotes from the number of people who said they were always thought the buildings were ugly to the people who claimed it was like seeing the live version of an action movie special effects. Some shared stories of meeting up with people to go do something else or using that day's confusion to meet with their secret lover or something. No, seriously, there was more than one story in there of someone uh, meeting up with the person whom with they were having an affair. It's not trolling on the part of Salon. In the article, Damien Cave acknowledges that they are painful. They are mortifying to hear. They could be disgraceful, all these sentiments. Then he goes on to express that his purpose in publishing them is for the sake of an honest record and to undermine the mythology that had been building since that day. I don't agree with a lot of the sentiments, and pardon my French here, but fuck Ann Coulter and double fuck Jerry fucking Falwell. But I agree with the idea of them being part of the public record. One that actually didn't make it into the column, by the way, was that of Bill Maher, who on the September 17th, 2001 episode of his nighttime talk show, Politically Incorrect, said things similar to what Sontag had to say in The New Yorker. The reaction to what he said led to advertisers pulling their support and decline on viewership, ultimately the cancellation of Politically Incorrect in 2002. Marr would return to television with real time with Bill Marr on HBO in 2003. The reader's responses to forbidden thoughts about 9-11 is much better because while there were some random people in the original column, a number of them were editors. They were journalists. They, uh, and, and a lot of them didn't necessarily want to go completely on record, but they certainly had in, inappropriate things to say. The readers, on the other hand, wrote in almost relieved that they finally had a place to say something or tell a story that didn't line up with the sentiment and flag-waving. Some of it is very dark, such as the quote from Marissa, who used the phrases North Tower and South Tower in games of Jenga with her husband. Another anonymous one talked about his friend who openly wondered about the 212 phone numbers that would become available after that day. Another anonymous reader talked about how he wished his father, whom he hates, had died in the attacks because that way it would have been easy to memorialize him. Others complained about how this all just enhanced the narcissism of Americans and especially New Yorkers. And I'm not going to spend too much more time on this, but I do want to share three that I always come back to when I think of this whole forbidden thoughts on 9-11 set of articles. The first one is from a man named Mitch Hellman. He says, on Friday, September 14th, I was in a shopping mall getting some last-minute items for a vacation trip the following day. I had mixed feelings about taking the trip, but it was too late to change the dates. On my way out, I saw two people walking through the mall carrying candles, and I saw three others standing outside as I left. 
I held my tongue, but what I really wanted to say was, you're deeply moved by the recent events, and the only place you can think of to share your grief is a shopping mall? Why not go to a church or house of worship of your choice? Or maybe the mall is your house of worship. Driving home, I saw a bunch of people on a busy street corner. One of them was waving a big American flag, and people were trying to get drivers to honk their horns. It was all I could do to keep from rolling down the window and shouting, Thousands of people lost their lives, and you're acting like your team just won the World Series. This next one is from Maggie from Massachusetts. A friend of mine noted that as all the flag bumper stickers and crap started getting slapped up all over houses, cars, and work cubbies, that some people weren't even really sticking the stickers on their cars. They were scotch-taping them to the inside of their car windows. It was as if they knew that their surge of patriotic feeling would fade and they wouldn't want to be left looking like a hick with the stupid flag sticker left on their car. Totally cynical, but I think that's true. And I have one from Amy Dawson of Brooklyn who says, So I remember feeling that people who weren't from New York were assholes, that they were interested in fetishizing my, memori my memories. Total strangers were probing deeply into the most terrifying experiences of my life, and I hated them for it. Even my tears would not stop their questions. Even with my tears, they could never understand. And I know I said I was going to read three, but I want to read one more because this one always sticks with me. I come back to this one. I just, I, again, these are ones I come back to when I think about a lot. I think about this one probably the most. So it's a long one. It's from a woman named Jen. And she said... When the planes hit, and it was clear they were planes bound for L.A., and when it was clear that a massive conflagration had ensued in the towers, I reached for my calculator. This is a chemistry class thermodynamics problem, went my illicit cold train of thought. I used a TI-83 graphing calculator. I used it in my calculus classes at an Ivy League school. I used it in my chemistry and physics classes there, too. I got A's in the classes calorimeter problem. I thought the carbon-hydrogen bonds of that jet fuel are breaking like crazy, releasing energy like crazy, raising the temperature like crazy. I began to think about the contribution that the rake-like penetrating crash into steel made to increasing the surface-to-volume ratio of the fuel tank's contents, and therefore exposure to vaporization and combustion, more CH bonds breaking simultaneously. Yes, the temperature, delta T in the equation, would render the temperature in the container one that would make solid steel into molten steel. And then there were the people. I set about calculating the number of people who could be expected to arrive at work at the towers, the number descending the stairs upon the first plane hit, the rate at which they could walk the stairs in an orderly fashion below the affected floors, and the timing of the melting of the towers. Conclusion that the numbers gone would be the number of people at work on time on a bright, sunny Tuesday in September that would surely have beckoned for some to stay in bed with legs happy, moving against deliciously crisp sheets, breathing a late summer breeze through the window, or to go by corduroys in a work of fiction, or to escape to the Catskills, or to get to work early to turn over a new leaf. Yes, about 3,000 would be gone. Calculating morbid stuff, it's cold, it's utilitarian, throws Kantian ethic into the wind, reduces people to numbers, and it's very pragmatic if we want to stop and think about what is going on. 
As Congress sang and swayed, I hit numbered buttons. All these sentiments are in a big way for these people cathartic, and they're an anonymous validation of what they've suppressed or been too scared to acknowledge. Another thing that people were too scared to do after that day, at least in the immediate, was laugh. Irony got declared dead in a number of think pieces after 9-11. And while the late night talk shows did come back, they started with very serious monologues, the most famous of which was from David Letterman. I wasn't watching Letterman at the time. I did watch Jon Stewart, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart on the regularly, and I remember Jon Stewart's monologue vividly. It was a serious emotional monologue, and it set the tone for what The Daily Show would become during the 2000s, which was a whip-smart political satire and commentary talk show, as opposed to the slight parody of a talk show that Craig Kilborn had launched in the mid-90s. I also remember Saturday Night Live with its cold open of Paul Simon singing The Boxer with firefighters, police, and first responders standing on stage, at the end of which Lorne Michaels and Rudy Giuliani had this exchange. Can we be funny? Why start now? And while the episode that followed only had a couple of memorable sketches, the Will Ferrell wearing a patriotic Speedo to the office stands out in my mind. The show's cast was one of its best ever and got SNL and its comedy back on track as the year went on. But if I'm thinking about comedy in 9-11, nobody did this as well as The Onion which on September 27, 2001, published its first issue since the 9-11 attacks. The magazine had just relocated from Madison, Wisconsin to New York, and though most people read it did so online, a number of other people still picked up the print edition. The combination of that move to New York, as well as the need to create something that both responded to the attacks and captured and commented on the atmosphere of the moment was, holy fucking shit attack on America the logo of which was a picture of the map of the U.S. with an explosion inside of it and a target on the U.S. The headlines on the front page were, U.S. vows to defeat whoever we're at war with. Hugging up 76,000%. Jerry Falwell, is that guy a dick or what? Rest of country temporarily feels deep affection for New York. Massive attack on Pentagon, page 14 news. American Life Turns Into Bad Jerry Bruckheimer Movie, Hijackers Surprised to Find Cells in Hell, and my favorite, Not Knowing What Else to Do, Woman Bakes American Flag Cake. A USA Today-esque stat shot infographic asks, how have we spent the past two weeks? One, crying. Two, staring at hands. Three, feeling guilty about renting video. Four, calling loved one. Five, thinking about donating blood. Six, watching TV for nine hours, finally getting up, going to corner store for cheese doodles, eating cheese doodles, realizing cheese doodles aren't helping, throwing cheese doodles away. It is irreverent, it is accurate in its satire, and it's one of those I needed this moments of hilarity. I remember reading, heading to a friend's apartment around the time this came out, and it really was all we could talk about, because after two weeks of watching nonstop mourning, we honestly needed it. And another thing we needed in the days after 9-11 was sports. 
In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, the major sports leagues, Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NCAA, all put their respective seasons on hold, feeling that it was not appropriate to play ball soon after such a massive national tragedy. Of course, this makes a lot of sense, but journalists were quick to point out that in 1963, the National Football League played a full schedule after President Kennedy's assassinations, so there were questions as to whether or not the league would do the same thing. All of the leagues eventually resumed their seasons, with various aspects of Americana on display. The NFL and Fox Sports were probably the most out front with this, as they strengthened their relationship with the military, including a number of moments with or salutes to troops overseas and during game coverage. Plus, there was more attention paid to the ceremony of the national anthem before games, with some teams even adding songs like God Bless America and America the Beautiful to the evening's activities. By the time the Super Bowl came around, the patriotism and sports connection was tight, and approximately 86.8 million viewers saw the New England Patriots pull off the biggest upset since the Jets beat the Colts in Super Bowl III, as Adam Vinatieri kicked a game-winning field goal, giving the franchise its first ever Lombardi trophy, beating the Rams, aka the greatest show on turf, 20-17. Now, I will fully admit that I was rooting for New England and Tom Brady in this one. Why? A combination of rooting for the underdog and reading way too much of Bill Simmons' column in, on ESPN.com. If the game being a nail-biter wasn't enough, though, U2's halftime performance was one of the more iconic halftime performances in Super Bowl history. The band had been riding a high on its All That You Can't Leave Behind album, and they opened with Beautiful Day before they performed two songs, MLK and Where the Streets Have No Name. During those performances, the names of the victims of the 9-11 attacks scrolled up on two screens behind them. It was a well-received performance, and even 20 years later, it stands out as a well-done tribute. Yes, Bono can be irritating on a level that very few can ever hope to achieve, but his performance was straightforward and didn't get jingoistic. It was a bombastic rock performance because it's a U2 performance, but at the same time was restrained. I know that sounds weird to say it like that, but if you watch it, you'll know what I mean. But Super Bowl 36, that was five months after 9-11. That was February 3rd of 2002. And yeah, it was memorable. There were other sports that left their mark before then, and probably the most important one or most notable one was baseball. Now, in my comics episode, I did mention a Brian Azzarello penned short story that referenced the 2001 World Series. That's where the Arizona Diamondbacks beat the New York Yankees on a ninth-inning walk-off hit by Luis Gonzalez in Game 7, a dramatic finish to what was a dramatic series. I'm sure that a number of people will say that it was disappointing to see the Diamondbacks win because of the fact that the Yankees were from New York, New York had been attacked, murica, 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 and all that shit, but here's where my bias comes in there, because I loathe the Yankees, and when Gonzalez hit that ball, I jumped off my couch. I was so happy. So I'm not going to talk about the Yankees. I'm not going to talk about the World Series. No, I'm going to talk about a moment that occurred on September 20th, 2001 at Shea Stadium. That night, the New York Mets 
played the Atlanta Braves in the first of a three-game series. That game and that entire three-game series were highly anticipated because of their playoff implications. Atlanta, who would go on to win the National League East, was in first place. The Mets were fighting for playoff contention. Adding to the night was the fact that this was the first game played in New York City since 9-11. And Shea had been used as a staging area for rescue and relief workers, even housing some of them in temporary shelters in its parking lot. The direct connection there was reflected in the fire and police department hats that the players wore on the field and in performances of God Bless America by Diana Ross in New York, New York by Liza Minnelli. The game was contentious and competitive, as all games between New York and Atlanta were in the early 2000s. Atlanta wasn't exactly going to roll over in sympathy. Each team scored a run in the fourth inning, and then Atlanta scored another run in the top of the eighth. In the bottom of the eighth, Edgardo Alfonso took a walk, and with one out, Mike Piazza stepped up. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run! Mike Piazza and the Mets lead 3-2. to There are very few moments in sports that come out of nowhere to not just capture a national mood, but make everyone watching feel like they are with the player or players in the moment. The Miracle on Ice is definitely one. This is another. Piazza crushes this ball. Just absolutely crushes it. And when he does... It feels as if the 41,000 people in the stands and the thousands watching at home are doing it with him. That deafening sound of Shea, once that ball goes out, is probably one of the loudest crowds the stadium ever heard. That sound is not just the sound of celebrating a go-ahead run in an important game against your playoff rivals, but a massive, cathartic release. If I have any regret about that game, it's that I wasn't there in the stands, because to me, it's a perfect moment. And 20 years later, I still get goosebumps when I watch it on YouTube. So before I close things out for this mini-series, I'm going to spend time with your feedback. My first piece of feedback is an email from Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes podcast and blog, and also a fellow Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network member. He writes in to say, Tom, I'm listening to part one of your mini-series, and I thought that I would share my memories of that day 20 years ago. At the time, I was working at a sheet metal contractor in Wayne, New Jersey, 
approximately two miles as the crow flies from lower Manhattan. My then fiance, now wife, was working overnights supervising some of the work at Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, approximately 30 miles, again as the crow flies, from where Flight 93 went down. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I was at work and one of the guys in the office had a radio on, which was typical. Lee, the gentleman with the radio, heard the report of the first plane crash and mentioned it to everyone. We had some work in New York City, so any news like that caught our attention, but we went on working. As events unfolded, however, work slowly stopped getting done and we either gathered around the radio or looked up what information we could online. One of the things that I did was try and get in touch with Michelle, first to let her know that I was all right, but later to make sure that she was. I knew that she was working at Falling Water, but I wasn't 100% sure where she was staying while out there. As these events occurred while she was off of work, I worried just how close she might have been to the crash site. As I'm sure you remember, phone lines were pretty much useless, so I was unable to get through to her. It turns out that she was worried in the same way about me, once she got up and saw what was going on and had the same issue. We did manage to get in touch with each other later that night. Remember, email on phones didn't exist yet. But that's a level of panic and unease that I really don't ever want to revisit. I consider myself one of the lucky ones. Yes, Michelle and I were close to what happened, but none of our family or friends were hurt or killed in the attacks. If the chills that I felt listening to you go through the timeline are any indication, then I truly feel for those who have to relive the pain of losing loved one every year. Before changing jobs and moving away from the North Jersey area, I did get to visit the 9-11 memorial. That, much like the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, is an extremely solemn and sobering place. Unlike the wall, though, this is in the exact place that the people died, and that adds what feels like a weight to it. I'd compare that to the feeling I got when we were in Washington and I saw my father touching the name of his older brother, whom I am named for. The pain and loss are palpable. I know why there are some people much more directly connected to that day in September than I refuse to go there. Thanks for doing this series, Tom. You have the gift of research ability that makes listening to these projects of yours truly educational. Gene. Thank you very much, Gene. I, um, I, I really do appreciate those words, and, and thanks for sharing your story. My next email is from Kirk Gronwald, and he says, Hi, Tom. First, let me thank you for your thoughtful and well-reasoned shows on 9-11. I stumbled upon the fifth show and have been backing up listening to the others. As far as pop culture mentions in literature, perhaps you have already mentioned this, but there is a perfectly timed reference in the book Flight 800 by Neville DeMille. It is said that as he was writing the book, he let his son proofread it, and the son guessed that the tale was building toward 9-11, which Neville had not intended. When he realized that was a better ending to the story, he had altered the manuscript and went with his son's suggestion. It fits well. Actually, I did not uh, did not know that. Um, you know, uh, the, the literature episode is the shortest one, um, and there's a lot more out there beyond what's, what's there. Uh, it's something I may um, just personally revisit and kind of you know, read a little bit more of as we you know, as kind of the years go by and stuff. But thank you for, thank you for pointing this out. 
He says, second, there's a recent mass marketing book series based on the old time tunnel concept, where a man goes back in time to thwart the terrorist attacks from 9-11 in the Twin Towers. It's basically a revenge fantasy where the hero gets to them before they can get to us. However, it ends with a cliffhanger as someone with knowledge of the future can then profit in the wrong ways. A lesson we learned in Back to the Future, movies <laughs> one and two, yeah. <laughs> as for me... I was working evenings as a TV weatherman in a small Midwestern market, and my wife was working days at the local PBS TV station. I was sleeping in that morning when she called home and told me to turn on the TV because something was going on at the World Trade Center and, and it had been hit. I rolled over and used the remote to turn on the TV and spent a while flipping between channels. I guess I had missed footage of the second plane strike, but it was obvious I wasn't going to be getting back to sleep. I think I saw both towers collapse. It seemed inevitable once the first went down. I called my mother up in Michigan to check in with her, and she told me of an additional plane that had crashed in Pennsylvania, and she wondered if it had flown over top of us here in southeastern Ohio. It had not. I got up and shaved and showered, got dressed, and drove the five blocks or so to the elementary school where my kids were, were attending in different classes. I found my daughter in fourth grade entering for lunch in the cafeteria and sat with her during lunch, instructing her to remember this day and the fact that I had come to sit with her. I told her it was a day that she would want to remember for the rest of her life and that the country's air traffic had been shut down due to an accident and several plane crashes in New York City. She didn't seem too distressed at all, as this was still a very normal day in her life. She went out on the playground and I waited for my younger son to arrive for his lunch period. He was even less appreciative of me being there to sit with him, but I gave him the same explanation and that he would want to remember this day. I also noticed a woman rush into the cafeteria, wild-eyed and panicking, run across the room and scoop her child up into her arms and make for the exit doors. I recognized her as the wife of a visiting professor from New York State. She was in full protective mother mode. I stood up and started to move toward her, only slightly blocking her way toward the exit door when she and I locked eyes. She had a wild look and was struggling not to cry, but wasn't being very successful at keeping her emotions under check. I didn't block her, but spoke to her in low tones saying, take it easy, we don't want to alarm the kids. Remember, your child would always remember how you act and what you do with them on this day of days. Keep yourself under control. She took a few sobs and swallowed hard and calmed a bit before nodding and then forged th through the exit door. I called my boss at work and asked if there was anything he needed from me in light of what was unfolding, and he did not. I told him I would expect to be coming in at regular time then, and he should call me if that were to change. It didn't. Basically, all that week we had no local news, and except for a few minutes to summarize the weather, which was clear and good all week long, we had no 6 p.m. newscast, but only an 11 p.m. full newscast. The entire week was extremely light duty in light of what happened. I do remember being surprised at how quickly word spread about a culprit who was responsible. I saw a few window decals spring up in the rear window of cars in the community that blamed someone named Osama bin Laden, as well as 9-11-01 Never Forget. My last memory was of Saturday Night Live resuming their programming with the mayor of New York City and Lorne Michaels on stage making remarks of how difficult the week had been and that it was time to heal. Lorne Michaels turned to the mayor and said, so it's okay to be funny now, to which the mayor then replied, why start now? 
It was clever and broke the tension, and the show continued from there. I'll never forget that. Thank you, Kirk. Uh, that was a really, really great email and a really uh, fascinating story uh, about uh, you know your kids and uh, working at a local television station, a local news. They're really, really interesting. Um, like I said, I, I was I was technically well, I was I was living with with Amanda, but we weren't en- even engaged yet. And so you know, Brett wouldn't be born into two thousand seven. So I don't have that perspective of being around children when this happened. Um, so it was really, really interesting to hear that. My next piece of feedback is a Facebook message from J. David Weeder, who does a number of podcasts here as well over on the Two True Freaks Network. Until I listened to your most recent installment of the 9-11 Mini, I always assumed that the song The Rising was speaking about persevering through dark times in general. After your episode, I put that track on and it gutted me. Well done. Thank. This has been an engaging series. Thank you for your hard work. And thanks, Dave. I really do appreciate that. And finally, uh, Gay Polisner, who's the author of The Memory of Things, messaged me over Instagram and said that uh, I came across your podcast, which is in and of itself fun to listen to, but I was blown away by what you said about my book and my writing. Made my mom and my sister listen. I'll be listening to more episodes and sharing. And I said that I was uh, very flattered. Thank you for uh, getting reaching out and getting in touch with me. That was really, really cool. So yeah, so that's it for feedback. Um, it was great to read that. And if you're listening and you still want to share yours, please do. I have another episode of, of Pop Culture Affidavit, the main show here, dropping toward the end of September. And there's definitely a place where you'll be able to hear your feedback on that if you if you send it my way. Remember, the email for this show is popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And right now, I'm going to close things out with what should be the moment in this miniseries where I sum everything up. Although I have to admit to you right off the bat, this is really tough for me to do. I have rewritten this last portion of this episode here three times at this point. And I still don't know if I'm getting it right. Then again, I don't know if there is a right to get here. I've been wanting to look at 9-11 in popular culture for years. And this became a mini-series when I realized that the list of topics I made over the last few years, and when I decided to do it, it was I was like, oh, I'll do it around the 20th anniversary. Well, that list of topics, it was it was huge. It was too large for one episode, so I decided to break it up into a mini-series. And this final episode in particular is really important to me because of the way it highlights the ephemera of 9-11, the, measure, the messiness of our culture trying to bandage our wounds and process the events. Weeks after the disaster, so many of us were still trying to make sense of everything, and quite frankly, I'm really unsure if we ever really did. This past Sunday... The Washington Post had two huge pieces about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. The first, by Carlos Lozada, is a long-form essay titled, 9-11 was a test we failed. His thesis is that if we look at the books about 9-11 that were published in the last 20 years, we see how our reaction, or as he says, our overreaction, upended our country's values. He looks at a large swath of something that I didn't tackle in these six episodes, history books, policy analysis books, nonfiction works that are kind of the post-bread and butter when you really think of it. They love a good political wonk book. 
I left those books out because I simply didn't have the time to read them. And to be honest, while I enjoy history, and yeah, I do indulge in armchair quarterbacking of politics and policy from time to time, and hey, we all do that, right? I wasn't in the mood. So I, I left those out. Maybe maybe because maybe I just didn't have the energy. I don't know. Maybe it still feels too real, too soon. I know it's been 20 years, but thinking about the anniversary, thinking about this day, even though there's a little bit of, of catharsis in some of the things that I've covered, there's a little bit of, of good opportunity for reflection. Feelings of, of anger, anxiety, depression still come up. And um, so that's why I tread carefully through a lot of these things. One of the pieces that I thought was actually really valuable was another piece from The Post in The Washington Post magazine, uh, September 5th, 2021. And uh, it actually is a little more germane to this episode. It's called How 9-11 Changed. And then there was just a laundry list of topics, art, entertainment, sports, travel, millennials, of course. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes because it provides a logical next step to this mini-series. I've been looking at what came out in the immediate aftermath or the pop culture that was directly about or responded to 9-11 pretty soon afterward, even or, or down the line in the case of some of the novels. But there was a more of a direct thing in the moment aspect to it if it was a plot or whatever. The Post looks at the long term. It look, they look how the attacks radiated out beyond just the tribute songs, the comic book stories, the reenactments on film. They remind me of how annoyed I often found myself in the weeks following 9-11 whenever I had to read or hear and everything has changed take in the media. Now, maybe I was in denial at the time, but I thought those people were being hyperbolic. Sure, things were going to change, but... It was a couple of weeks out. We're still sifting through the rubble. How much could we really gauge that? Didn't we need time to really think about it? Because it takes years to really discuss it. And even then, are we getting it on the nose when we do? Like when Anne Hornaday, the post-film critic, says, quote, we're still in the same escapist bubble that followed the event an entertaining spectacle for its own sake has even more thoroughly colonized the medium. I wonder if she remembers the movies that came out in the years preceding 2001, you know, disaster flicks, teen sex comedies, and 1999's doubleheader spectacle of The Matrix and The Phantom Menace. She does point out that not all of our entertainment was escapist and even summer blockbusters since 2001 acknowledge current geopolitics pointing out that the MCU literally begins in a post-9-11 Afghanistan with the military-industrial complex profiting off of our war. But pop culture has always had one foot in escapism and another foot in serious issue-driven material. Look at 1969, where Sugar Sugar was on top of the charts alongside the peak of counterculture with stuff like Woodstock. Look at 1983. Risky Business was in theaters making a lot of money the day after was getting huge ratings on television. We will always have a need for culture that reacts, culture that reflects, and culture that helps us escape. And that escape does not mean we forget. It's just that we only, can only stay in the middle of the disaster for so long, and we have to step back to get perspective, or in the very least, to catch our breath. 
Of course, one of the great ironies is that how we remember 9-11 is a way of escaping it or escaping talking about it. I stopped going on Facebook around September 11th years ago. I would mute a lot of people for 30 days. I was just... Because my feed would be filled with bald eagles, flags, firefighters at ground zero, reposted memes, those long, I bet 1% of people won't repost this screeds about heroes. And stories that have been posted so many times that people are just now reposting the memory that comes up in their timeline that day. And now I realize this makes me sound like a total asshole. And I'm not begrudging people what they want to express on social media. I'm just saying I step away because I'm really, you know, just don't want to don't see those things. Because they're supposed to become Christmas ornaments. We put them on the tree because they've always been there. We've always had them. They have meaning. But what years do you put an ornament on and you look at it and you remember when you got that on a vacation or something? And what year do you put it on? Because like, I think I always put it on that branch. Maybe I'll put it on this branch. And... You know, if fa- Facebook's like showing you this is what you wrote in 2018. You're like, oh, I'm just going to hit the share button. How, how heartfelt is that? Again, I sound like an asshole and I apologize, but there's a lack of nuance in that. And I think that's what gets to me. And shit, it actually lacks conversation and it helps keep 9-11 as this big thing. Yeah, it's a big thing. I'm not discounting that. But when you think about it, it doesn't really serve us very well to make it a big, untouchable thing. The type of thing that you should, oh, you should know about it, but we don't really talk about it. But you should know about it. Don't you just know about that? And that is actually dangerous because it allows those who have an agenda to more easily twisted to their purposes because we're not talking about it. So we're t- they're taking advantage of that. Because they want money, they want power, they want influence. And it kind of hurts the kids, and I'll get to that in a moment. So a few months ago, transition a little bit, on required reading, Stella and I discussed Elie Wiesel's Night. And uh, that is a work that's one of the most important books of the 20th century. And reading that book, discussing it, and passing it on, when we do that, we all bear witness to the Holocaust. And we fight against the indifference that Weissel said is the epitome of evil. It's not easy to look beyond the reposted flag memes, the hero screeds, and all that, but we really do have to. We have to see what happened, where it truly came from, how we really reacted, how we acted afterwards, what came out of all of that. We mythologize September 12th and some sort of moment of togetherness under the stars and stripes. And that was part of it. I'm not going to deny that happened. But a lot of times when it gets brought up, the rest of everything seems to fall by the wayside. And there's very little discussion about it. When we do this, do we talk about the grief of those who lost someone and how they actually felt, or do we simply say we're sorry? Do we talk about the trauma and the survivor's guilt who were in lower Manhattan and actually made it out alive? 
kids. We ask them if they still have nightmares, if they can even go downtown to the memorial or even into downtown Manhattan. Can they go to Arlington? Can they go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania? Can they even turn the television on that day? Do we remember how bigotry was amplified, how Muslim Americans found themselves being harassed, attacked, even killed for something they had nothing to do with? Do we actually teach our children and our teenagers, most of whom are younger than the Iraq war at this point, the full story? Or do we have it again as the big thing that they should know about, but we're not going to talk about? So they have to seek it out for themselves. And if we, have to ha- if we want them to seek it out for themselves, are we giving them the tools and the skills that they need so that they can find the right information? Can, they can find that nuance. They can have those discussions without falling into some sort of QAnon conspiracy or something like that. One of the better 20th anniversary pieces I've seen so far, and uh, before I talk about this, I I have to give thanks to Stella for sending it my way the other day. It's a PBS documentary, and I believe it's just aired, called Generation 9-11. In it, the filmmakers profile the group of 20-year-olds whose mothers were pregnant with them when their fathers were killed on 9-11 in the attacks. Some were killed in the Trade Center. Some There was like at least one who was on board the plane, somebody in the Pentagon, etc. So in this special, you have a recollection of the disaster. You have stories of their victims and their families and an examination of how we all have moved on and survived in the 20 years since, but also what it was like to grow up with this really as a shadow that loomed incredibly large in your life even though you didn't know why until you were well into childhood, depending on when your parents told you why your dad wasn't there. What is it like to grow up without your father and have that be the reason? What is it like when mom remarries and how now you have new siblings and again, that's in the background. What's it like to be a 9-11 kid who appears on the Today Show when there's an anniversary? It's a really heavy documentary. It's even gutting in places, especially when the filmmakers touch upon everything else this generation has witnessed since 2001, along with the pressure they feel to be the generation that, quote, fixes everything. All At least that's how some of them put it. And I'm not going to get into intergenerational bickering. Um, That's for TikTok if you're ever interested. But really, pithy comments aside, this is a really personal piece for everybody involved. And it really shows the really human side of things and and such. But it also kind of is like, uh, shows like the larger footprint of things. And I'm not sure if it's aired in every market yet. I know it's streaming on the PBS app and that's where I watched it. And I would check it out if, if you feel like watching it. It was very, very well worth it. It's, it's about two hours long, so it is a little bit of a commitment, but it, it was really worth it. So finally, to say that I enjoyed doing these six episodes is odd. 
How do you enjoy spending time going over one of the most important events of the century? But this was rewarding in its way. Because while 9-11 is not something to get nostalgic over, I think that watching, listening, reading, and reflecting is always important. So whether you've listened to just this episode, or you've gone back and listened to all of the episodes, or you're going to go back and listen to all of the episodes, thank you very much for coming along. Thank you for sharing them out. Thank you for writing feedback Um, And thank you for being here. Like I said earlier, I will still take feedback about this. I'll read it on the next episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, uh, which will be September, October, you know, like whenever. Every time you want to send me email about this, I will happily read it out and I will let you know when uh, when I do. And uh, if you are going to do that, once again, the email address is popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Get in touch with me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, not only would I like to hear what you have to say about the show, but I would like to hear your stories, either what you remember about the day or the thoughts you have 20 years later. So again, thank you very much for listening and take care. This has been 9-11 in Popular Culture, which is presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and narrator is Tom Paneris. Background music is by Sanji, MD Sabir Khan, Royalty Free Music, and Dick DeRitter, all of which are used via the Creator of Commons license. Other clips used in this series are done so under fair use. Show notes are available at popcultureaffidavit.com. Emails can be sent to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at popcultureaffidavit. And on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thank you very much for listening.